Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Copeland. Delivers and I got pulling at that. It's got high in the air. The field is coming around. Sanger's there and he's taking the catch. And that's five for Trent Copeland. Hello and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered. This is our winter series number two. I'm, of course, your host, Manners. And returning to the show after a few months' absence is Jaleesa Apps. Jaleesa, how are you? I'm good, Manners. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, thanks for joining us. The listeners have missed you, so it's great to have you back. It's good to be back. And that sound was Trent Copeland taking five wickets last summer at Bankstown Oval. And joining us on the show now is the man himself, Trent Copeland. How are you? Going well, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. And nice intro too. Yeah, well, um, it, was a, it was a great fire for there at Bankstown against the South Australians. Uh, and uh, let's start there. You know, New South Wales Shield winners last summer. You must be pretty satisfied. Yeah, there's just so much work that goes into it. And I'm sure you know, we're in a very different landscape at the moment. And that's worldwide, not just cricket. People are doing things differently. The winning of the Sheffield Shield had to be done a little differently last year um, without a final being played. But uh, certainly you know, the hard work we had done to that point to be so far in front on the table. And in my experience playing over sort of 11, 12 years, it, it was one of the more dominant years that we've had personally um, in a New South Wales dressing room. So um, nice to turn the tables on Victoria um, after their recent dominance. Um, yeah. And certainly with the youth that we've got in our squad and the guys that were playing in those games, hopefully we're on you know, a nice path to the next four or five years as well. 
Yeah, it must have been. Well, you know, you said that it was the best start to the summer for you personally. I think it's the best start New South Wales has ever had where they came out of the box. It was five from five. Or it was incredible. So a uh, dominant performance. I guess, how does the, the two compare? You know, you won the Shield in 2013-14. You won the final. This one, there was no final. How did it compare? Um, look, there's nothing that can replace the feeling and the elation of a, a winning final dressing room, you know, immediacy of sitting down with your teammates, celebrating, drinking a beer, uh, and, and that, which we get in Australian sport. But you know, much like the English Premier Division in football, you know, the prestige and the rewarding of the regular season dominant winners, um, I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. So, look, at the end of the day, we go down as champions and I couldn't care less how it got there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's a, gr- it's a great win. We're starting all the winter series with two questions to start. What is your favourite cricketing moment so far? Wow, that's a broad one. Uh, I, I really struggle to narrow it down. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and it, it may seem silly to people who haven't played sport, but um, it, it's not actually the playing of a game. It's the tradition of being presented your baggy cap. Yep. So being presented my baggy blue by a... I'm from Bathurst, a country town in New South Wales, and a legend of my area, a man who brought me to Sydney had a huge influence in my St. George club career, um, but is also in a legend of Australian cricket and hockey at the Olympics, Brian Booth. Uh, I call him Mr. Booth. He, uh, he was the one who presented my cap to me on the morning of my debut for New South Wales. Uh, and thankfully, the God, as the gods would have it, I went on to take eight for in that first innings of Shield cricket. And it was just one of those days that was, or one of those, I guess, four days with Shield cricket that, I will remember till the day that I pass away because of the amount of things that were special about it. The cap in particular, but also the tingles down my spine when I walked out of the change room at the SCG onto that hallowed turf and got to call it my own home ground. That's really special. Incredible. Who who gave you your baggy green? Baggy green. That's an interesting story. Uh, I was uh, at Gaul. Um, in Sri Lanka, we're all slow, medium bowlers dream of debuting in their test career. Um, and I got to the ground with Nathan Lyon, actually. We were both making our debuts that game. We had played a lot of cricket from Western Zone together along the way. And we got to the ground. There was a little bit of a rain delay. A bit of my family were there. And in comes Dougie Walters on a moped uh, with one of the <laughs> tour groups. Uh, and he arrives at the ground and, and he wanders over and presents me with my baggy. And I'll tell you what, uh, there doesn't get uh, too many bigger names and I guess too many bigger moments in your career where you can sit back and go, wow, <laughs> I mean, I've just had one of the legends of Australian cricket um, stand there and tell me about how much it means to play for our country uh, and hand over one of the most prized possessions that anyone can get in this country. Absolutely. Absolute legend. So from your favourite moment, what's your sort of toughest day in cricket? I guess your least favourite moment. Uh, There's lots of long days in the dirt where you don't take a wicket that spring to mind. But I think it's actually not necessarily one specific moment, but it's when you get to a big moment in a game, particularly in big finals, uh, and you fail to seize that moment. Uh, So one that sticks out was our final loss to Victoria two years ago in the Sheffield Shield. Mm. Um, 
we dropped Marcus Harris a couple of times. He went on and made a big hundred in the first innings. That proved to be the difference in the game. Um, so I think it's probably it's losing big moments and then losing big games like that that sticks out where, you know, you just, you, you can't change it, obviously, but you look back and you think, oh, what could have been? So I guess was it sitting in the dressing room hearing the Vic boys that day sing their song and thinking, damn. Yeah, it, and it's it's the hearing of the team song, you know, the the getting on the flight home the next day. It's talking to family the ensuing weeks and months afterwards where you see someone for the first time, they say, oh, bad luck, you know, and then you have to talk about it again. So uh, that's the stuff, I guess, in sport that a lot of people don't see. It's, um, it's not necessarily just the in-the-moment result. It's the mental barriers and the challenges that come with the loss. Trent, when you eventually do go on and you do finally get that victory as you guys did, do, do those wounds kind of heal a little bit or are they still always there? That's a great question because I think for the senior guys who have been, I mean, I've played in a couple of final losses um, over the years and even a couple of years where we just missed the final by one or two points. The thing that was really surprising to me was the guys that had never played in a final before, so the rookies and the young guys, just had such brash, um, I guess, no scars, the way they <laughs> attacked the final. They just, you know, they, it was just such a fresh environment for them. Yeah. Um, whereas the guys who had been through it before, I guess, s- sat back, made sure we enjoyed the experience uh, regardless of a result. So I think yes is the answer to your question, but, you know, regardless of the results, we were able to, I guess, identify, okay, it's still a bloody good achievement to get here. Uh, make sure we don't forget that we're playing a game that we love, enjoy it, those sort of things. Absolutely. So, you know, you'll you start with your favourite, your least favourite. Let's go back to some good moments. At Bankstown Oval, we spoke about your five-wicket all, but actually at that day I met your very proud mother because she was so thrilled <laughs> that you had taken your 300th wicket for New South Wales. Now, I've got the list here of top wicket takers for New South Wales. Jeff Lawson at the top, Greg Matthews, Stuart McGill, Trent Copeland, number four, just 20 behind Stuart McGill. You know, you spoke about being given the baggy blue cap. It must be pretty amazing now to look at that list and go, wow, I mean, you know, the fourth on, on baggy blue wicket takers. Honestly, there's, there's no thing that has come my way in the last 12 months to 18 months that has shocked me more than that list. Honestly, those three are absolute legends of not only New South Wales cricket, but Australian cricket. I think if you say all those names... To anyone in this country walking down the street, they're like, oh, yeah, he was a legend. Uh, they certainly don't do that about me, but I'm very proud of you know, my standing in that list, but also the people that I've played with um, and the impact that they've had. I mean, I talk of Doug Bollinger very fondly, and he's somewhere just below just me on that list now, yeah. which is crazy in itself. But I got the opportunity to call him my partner, I guess, bowling with him at the other end for so long and it's those relationships that I sort of think about when I look at that list is just remarkable the likes of Mike Whitney Richie Benno um, numerous others that stick out and hopefully there's a couple of guys like Sean Abbott Harry Conway Liam Hatcher Chris Tremaine who's now back in New South Wales town that might assert that list over the next couple of years. 
No, you've got a fair way to go. A lot of wickets to go for some of those blokes. Do you, um, <laughs> you know, Jeff Lawson, actually, the leading wicket taker, still you know, heavily involved with New South Wales cricket. Uh, has he had an influence on your bowling at all? Because he's you know, very skillful. Oh, absolutely. He's been probably for 85% of my career with New South Wales, he's been the head bowling coach. So uh, it's only been recent times that Andre Adams has taken over. And I'll tell you what, he's a brilliant mind, very different way of thinking incredible calm atmosphere henry was quite the opposite you know he was um, as he was on the playing field he was very methodical but also very passionate um and he was he was great to bounce ideas off great at storytelling in the change room as well uh, big henry so yeah i'm getting nowhere near his wicket taking list but or tally sorry um but yeah he's he's had a huge impact on my career 59 to go, Trent. 59 to go. Oh, I can imagine you never that... know, Henry. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the New South Wales team, it has this a problem. Uh, it's not a problem, but it's an, an issue that half the time the Aussies are there and the players and half the time they're not. How is it in the group effectively having two teams? Uh, it's, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is it's New South Wales. That's what it has been for my entire career. 12 years at the top level. When I first started, I mean, I came in and I was playing with the likes of Stuart Clark, Brett Lee, Nathan Bracken, Simon Kadich, those sort of guys. And there was a lot of guys underneath that that were playing a lot of shield cricket. Mark Cameron, for example, in one year took close to 40 wickets. Then the shield final came around and the Aussies were available and he didn't play. You know, he was one of the best bowlers in the country and he just didn't get a chance to play in that final that he'd worked so hard to get to. So, you know, those are the sort of things that just become the norm in New South Wales. The batters in particular, over the years, we've had the likes of you know, Michael Clark, Steve Smith, Shane Watson at different times. So they come back, David Warner as well, they come back into the team. Guys like Daniel Hughes, doesn't matter how they're playing. You know, those guys play regardless. So there's got to be an acceptance of the stature of those guys, how much hard work's gone into them getting into the Australian team. And then when they come back, if, if you can measure yourself off, you know what, I don't care who's coming back. I want to be in that team. I want to be in that good a form that New South Wales selectors can't leave me out. They might not drop any of those guys, but they might find a different role for me to fit into the team. And that's, I guess, the measure of how good a New South Wales guy that's not playing for Australia can be. How do players take that when they do get get left out when those guys come back? Speaking from my own personal experience, uh, it's tough. I mean, I've been in over the last three years, probably some of my best form in my career mm. when you know, Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark and Lyon are all available for the one game and I'm made 12th man. I tell you now, it's not nice. Uh, I, I don't like it at all. But I'm also very understanding of the fact that they're you know, New South Wales born and bred. They are baggy blues before they were Australian players. Uh, they've earned that right. And I guess you've got to cop it and, and make sure that you're ready to go come the next game. Do you think they find it hard? Do you think they feel a little bit guilty? Um, it's potentially the, uh, I guess, little kick up the backside that they can't just come back in and just relax. Um, they can't just come back in and just coast in, uh, you know, hope that they'll just move on to the next test match and be good to go. I hope that certainly those guys, and when I was in the Aussie setup, albeit briefly, um, when you come back, there's definitely the onus on you to dominate. 
you can't just come back in and just be fine because there are those guys that have been performing so well sitting in that level below. So, I mean, one that comes to mind was Harry Conway took 10 wickets against Queensland this year at the Gabba. And then he was made 12th man for the next game when all the Aussie boys were around. So, you know, there's examples of this for years and years and years. And it's, I guess, it speaks to the strength of New South Wales cricket. There's so much talent. 10 wickets for Conway, 10 send-offs that game too. Quite a record. Um, <laughs> at the moment, actually, there's been a bit of a change in the squad. You know, you lost the veteran, Stephen O'Keefe, who was, you know, such a, a terrific servant for the team for many, many years. And I know Adam Zampa's now in, in the squad. It must have been tough to see Sock go. Yeah, it is. It's tough to see a lot of guys go. I mean, even guys like Greg West, um, you know, Nick Burtis, there's a, a few other guys, Ryan Gibson, that come to mind that are long-standing squad members. Sock stands out because his career is phenomenal. Uh, it speaks for itself. His record for Australia is up there with, you know, some of the best records for finger spinners in the last 15, 20 years. So his underrated batting ability, his leadership, um, and certainly just the presence he has on the field. Um, he Energy. Does, yeah, he does not back down in the face of adversity, challenges your opposition, not just skillfully, but mentally as well. Um, so we're going to have a tough time filling those shoes. And, you know, Socky is one of the greats of the game for New South Wales. But finger spinner-wise, numbers stand out better than anyone. I mean, Greg Matthews is number one, obviously. Uh, but Stephen O'Keefe sits firmly there, number two, and his batting numbers as an all-rounder, uh, so impressive. So I, I wish him all the best in the future and we're going to miss him. He's very funny too. <laughs> very funny. His interviews are always very amusing. <laughs> I, I can only see the moving sock on if someone was coming in because, you know, there's not a lot of spinners in the New yeah. South Wales system. So the fact that Zampa came back is no big surprise. Trent, what have you have you thought about your playing future at all? Like, you know, do you have a time limit? Uh, not really. Certainly, physically, I've I've had to think about you know when is my body going to cark it. I bowl so many overs that and and in recent times I've started bowling uh, two, three bounces and over. You know, particularly at places like Bankstown and uh, the SCG where it's so flat that you've just got to try and change your game and be different. I think two years from this moment is where I think I can comfortably get physically. But there's a lot that can go, you know, a lot of water under the bridge between now and then. It could be longer than that, uh, but it might also be shorter in the sense that one of my primary objectives of my career is not just to be successful, but it's also to... Uh, Legacy is not the right word, but I want to have a lasting impact on the guys that I've played with so that they're ready to take over specifically the role that I play in a team, but also as a bowling group, you know, not just skills wise, but also physically and mentally, um, tactically, those sort of things. So um, yeah, I'll reassess as we go along, but I I certainly don't have any intention of stopping anytime soon. So I guess what, what from that is you don't want to feel you're holding people back. Yeah. I'm not going to stand in anyone's way if I'm, and particularly if I've been dropped or, you know, there's guys that are excelling that just can't find a way into a team and we're not winning. Uh, I think they're the sort of things that would play on someone's mind in in a senior role. And that's performance-based. You know, I've got to look in the mirror and say, am I still delivering elite numbers and and contributing in a positive way to winning? Mm -hmm. If that's not happening, then that's probably when that, you know, lingering voice comes into your head. 
is it time? So that certainly hasn't happened yet. You you must have a unique perspective on on your own career, sort of transitioning into media now. You know, you do a lot of analysis of other players. Are you able to sort of do that about yourself? Uh, that's an interesting one. I've uh, I've been analysing my own game intricately for a long time. So I don't think the media influences uh, necessarily change that. The one thing I, I think it probably has done is made me sit back and understand um, and appreciate why I love playing the game. And certainly the guys that I have to then talk about and analyse, sometimes criticise on TV, make sure because I'm a current player that I'm doing it um, tactfully, that I'm doing it from a good place. Um, and if I'm going to criticise someone, I'll make sure that I would have that conversation to their face. And largely, if I can do that, I will do that before I go to air with it. Yeah. Have you ever had any players speak to you about some of the comments you've made? No. Look, you know, the best thing about cricketers, I think, is when you're being criticised on TV for stuff, generally, you're the one who's most inherently aware of what that problem is. So, um, you know, no is the short answer. I haven't said anything that anyone's been... Uh, shocked by or um, been worried about. What about, um, you, you know, the best, I'm just curious, what's the best batter you've bowled to in, in your career? You listed the names before in your team and opposition as sway the all-time superstars. I mean, anyone sort of stand out that just had a bit more time? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple. Um, Ricky Ponting in Sheffield Shield cricket playing for Tasmania, but also in the nets around Australian stuff. The way he... He went about his business. He was always the first to training, last to leave. Um, and it was no shock to me when I was exposed to him that he just, his level of giving you no margin for error was just insane. Um, the only one that went close to him, well, the only two I'd say is Mike Hussey uh, and externally was Kumar Sagakara, who I played against in the couple of tests that I played. Just an incredible way of making you feel like there's a brick wall at the other end. Like it didn't matter what you tried, you just weren't going to succeed. Yeah, and you, know, you mentioned you sort of um, you t- you test their bowling. So you played three tests in Sri Lanka. I sort of thought uh, heading into the the twenty nineteen Ashes, you might be in the frame for the Australia A team. Did you ever get an indication if you were close to that? Oh, uh, look, I think I Australia A was. I would never have gone on that tour. It would have been, you know, are you are you being picked in the in the Ashes squad or are you not? The A tour was centered around development and exposure for guys that were maybe right on the fringe of the side that were still young uh, and could benefit from time over there. And look, it, as far as indications go, look, it, that's not relevant really. It, I think I was in the best form of my career. I was bowling the best I've ever bowled, but the guys that went over there did the job, so it didn't matter. You know, I'm just stoked for them that they were able to go over there. And, you know, that Amazon series that we've now been able to witness exposing us to the inner sanctum of the World Cup and the Ashes, like that's about as good as it gets. And I'm thankful that I've been able to be inside that room at one point. What did you think of that documentary? Because, you know, a lot of them are teammates for New South Wales and spent a lot of time in cricket dressing rooms. What, how did it, you know, come across to you? Yeah, it was really good. The, the one thing I love is that, Forever and a day, I think the Australian public think that uh, they see a player walk out of a dressing room onto a field and that's who they are as a person. That's, you know, if they're, if they're sucking and they're getting ducks, they're awful. Uh, this gave a little bit of that 
colour, a bit of that picture of just how bloody brilliant our Australian cricketers are, how um, strong they are under pressure, how they were able to, in my opinion, someone like Aaron Finch. I hope people took away, you know, he swore a few times, he threw his helmet, um, he was a captain of a team going into a World Cup, talking about having to sit at a table and talk about, am I going to drop myself from this team uh, you know, going into a World Cup? Then he's able to go out there and lead from the front the way he spoke about those, the, you know, the interviews in 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 uh, the Amazon series, I thought that was a perfect example of who our best leaders in cricket are, and and that was a great exposure to the Australian public. Well, surprised some of the cricketers said that they didn't watch it. Steve Smith said he didn't like watching himself, <laughs> and a couple of the other ones said that they they didn't watch it either. Yeah, I'm not surprised about Smudge. I like. <laughs> I mean, he's got so many quirks and uh, how he goes about things. Uh, He would be privy to things that weren't aired on the doco Mm. that he would have been fretting about watching potentially, things like that. So, uh, look, I'm not surprised with some of it. There would have been guys there absolutely loving it. I can just imagine that Mitch Marsh was an absolute highlight for me. And, you know, when he's in the rain delay in England in the change rooms, giving it the... You know, getting on the beatbox machine and, you know, running the change room, running a little concert, and then JL walks in, he's like... <laughs> that shadow batting. Pretends he was, yeah, just uh, shadow batting, being normal. <laughs> it was great. It was a great show. Well, you know, we're on TV, so let's stay there. I, I'm really curious because, you know, it's not often that you have a player and a commentator at the same time. So, Trent, have you thought about what makes a good cricket commentator? Uh, yes, I have. I think one of the things that I've been taught um, in recent times and, and one thing that I've really noticed that I need to keep doing is put the viewer first. Put the viewer first and make the players the heroes. It's not about you. No one cares about you at that moment. Deliver it with tact. Deliver it with character. But ultimately, the most important thing is what happened on the field was because of the stars on the field and then translate that simply and in an easily understandable way to the viewer so that they have a good experience. I think that's the most important thing. Is it hard um, balancing cricket with media? Do you find that you have to give up some commitments for one or the other? Yes, absolutely. And I think to this point, it's been extremely hard. There's been times where there could be no winner in the situation, Uh, you know, someone was going to lose or everyone was going to lose type scenarios. But I'm incredibly thankful that I've got supportive people both with Channel 7, but also with, and particularly with my teammates and, you know, the hierarchy at Cricket New South Wales. This isn't a normal situation. I'm very fortunate that I've been given the opportunity. But yeah, I mean, Trying to find the time to do both hasn't been hard, but when there's scheduled clashes and I'm forced to make decisions, I really hate that because they're things that I'm incredibly passionate about and think that I can do for a long time in terms Mm. of media. And cricket, like, you know, if you ask anyone that knows me, I mean, I was unashamedly in tears when I had to miss a game. You know, that's how much I care about the baggy blue and, and it's part of what I've chosen to do. So I can honestly say I did it for the right reasons and I can cop what comes my way because of that. 
does it give you a little bit of security um, after cricket, knowing that you now can transition into these skills? Because that seems to be something that a lot of athletes struggle with is they don't know what to do after they finish the sport. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, since I... Straight after that 2013-14 win we had in the Shield, I did my back for the only time I've ever had a serious injury in cricket. Um, I was out for a season and I got a chance to commentate on ABC Grandstand on the Test Summer. But more importantly, I had a good window of five months where I had to sit back and go, you know what, I can't can't play cricket. What am I going to do? So I was lucky in a sense that that happened at that point. So I could just figure out what I enjoyed doing outside of cricket and media to me, I'm not trying to be a cricket guy. I want to be, if you don't know me, I'm one of the biggest sports nuffies across so many sports, particularly American sports, NRL. Ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. AFL, just as passionate, but I was incredibly fortunate to be able to give him the opportunity to go to the, like the Olympics coverage, um, which I was so stoked to get involved with. Hopefully that still goes ahead next year obviously there's a bit of water to go under the bridge there but that's my goal it's not to be a cricket commentator I think I can do that and, and continue to do that really well but I want to be hosts across AFL NRL um, Olympics and be multifaceted in this I'm not trying to just be a cricket guy when you got the call to the Olympics was that like getting the call to the Aussie cricket team I mean not quite the same but I'll tell you what, we, when we all gathered together for the announcement and we had a dinner together, I was sitting in a room with Bruce McAvaney, you know, Hamish McLaughlin, Mel McLaughlin, uh, Sonia Kruger, Joe Griggs, you know, the list goes on. Uh, I was just pinching myself at the fact that I was going to be a part of this coverage. And I told a story that night, which I'm happy to tell you guys. Like, uh, I, One of my fondest sports memories of being a viewer was... The 2000 Olympics, watching, you know, Kathy Freeman, that huge moment. But at the end of the Games, I remember crying in my own living room to my mum because the Games were over. Like, <laughs> that's how much sport meant to me. And, I, you know, to this day, I have this desire that's just inbred in me that I just want to do stuff with sport. I don't want to sit at a desk nine to five. It's sport is everything to me. Mm. I think Jaleesa agrees with that. Fully. Well, Trent, uh, we're going to end this up, uh, end this interview up with a segment. It's you've become the god of the cricket laws, so you get to decide on these things. So I'm going to fire that, fire these at you. First one: Would you cut Shield to eight games next summer? Oh, don't even start me. I've had such a fight in the last two months about this exact topic. And you know what? We had a win. It's staying at 10 plus a final. Fantastic. Exclusive. There you go. Cricket unfiltered. Four-day tests. Where do you sit on that idea? Again, not a fan, mainly because there's first-class cricket around the world that people can play four days. Test cricket is that level above the elite, the challenge physically, mentally, tactically, uh, which requires, in my opinion, five days. The other thing people don't consider when they talk about this is if it rains at all throughout a test match and you're a four-day test, you're up against it. You've got joke declarations to try and get a result, which is not what the game's about. To be honest with you, I don't mind the innovation element of it and what it would force teams to do tactically. 
but there's too many downsides for my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I think if, say, Afghanistan wants to play Ireland in a four-day test, that's fine. If that means, you know, it's one more test they get to play, I think that's good for cricket. It's not something I'd like to see standardised. It does depend which country too, because as you mentioned, the weather element, like you just can't do that in England. No. Yeah, exactly. Well, even the SCG test the last couple of years, like it, it, there's been so much rain and then draws have come out of it because of that. So, mm. yeah, I, I actually don't mind that point, Andrew, that um, maybe the two-tiered system where if you're a top-ranked nation in the top eight, say, uh, nations in the world and you're playing against a tier two nation, that that becomes a four-day test match. I don't mind that idea. Yeah, for me, it's more experience for those countries. What about bringing in more international players to the Big Bash? At the moment, it's two per team and squad. I would like to see three or four per team. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, I don't mind it. The only thing that we don't want to happen is that we start diluting the talent pool in Australia and, and the best young players here don't get the chance to play. That's the biggest issue for me. But I don't see a reason why we couldn't expand the franchise number up in hand with going more overseas players. So maybe that's when that sort of thing might come in. Like a Canberra T20. Yeah, yeah Canberra, Gold Coast. Uh, okay. Uh, DRS in the Big Bash. Should they have it? Yes. Good one. And now this is one my friend wrote. Would you like the LBW law change to if it's hitting the stumps, it's out, regardless of where it pitches? Hey, you're talking to a bowler. Of course I would. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, no. Look, it, the, the short answer is I think that the trouble that a lot of people have with the LBW decision is so many so many umpires get it wrong. You know, it's, it's so hard to decipher whether a ball is, you know, to the millimetre pitched in line with leg stump and going on to hit it. So for the viewer and the, and the person watching at home and the umpire, it would just make it so much more simple. So... You know, the, you, the problem is you've got so many batters in the landscape, they're never going to agree to it. No, not at all. <laughs> Shane, can I just ask you one que- more question, um, which is a little off topic of cricket, but you mentioned that you were into NRL before and Paul and I always talk NRL on this show and then Andrew gets really angry at us. But I want to know who your team is. <laughs> I'm a rooster. Uh, oh! Rooster, yeah. Same. Oh, so. I'm getting off the call. Six again. Yeah, Six again, Delisa. Oh, I'm Six a Raiders again. fan. I can't. I know. I oh, know. No. Bad luck. I mean, <laughs> hey, the trainer has to be out there on the field. Oh, I mean, come on. God. We can't even... <laughs> Start with this. The trainer, the six again. I'm triggered. All right. Well, I think it's a good. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and we're not going too well this year either, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Well, I think that's a good good point to end the the podcast. Trent, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great to chat to you. Um, congratulations on um, the expectancy in your family for you and Kimmy expecting yeah, the first child. So, congratulations. You're going to have a, another delivery to deal with next summer (laughs) yeah i'm so excited thanks so much for that and yeah kim and i are excited not just me uh yeah lot to look ahead for this coming year and yeah thanks very much for having me thanks for joining us take care thanks so much Trent. And that's it for the second edition of our winter series. Don't forget, Paul and I are doing a live show every Thursday at 5.30pm on our YouTube channel. So head to Cricket Unfiltered on YouTube for our live show every Thursday at 5.30. You can find us on social media at Oz Cricket Pod. That's AUS Cricket Pod at Twitter and Instagram. 
Thanks so much to Trent Copeland for joining us on the episode this week and to Jaleesa Apps, who's finally returned to the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week to delve deep into the fractious relationship between the South African and Australian cricket teams. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.